There are monsters who dwell in our nightmares. Creatures of unspeakable horror, plotting to destroy mankind. But in this world, there are warriors who have the courage to confront this evil. Hello, welcome back to the, another episode of Let's Talk About Movies. This is a very special occasion because Halloween is right around the corner. I'm recording this a couple months ahead at the time because guess who got behind on other mini retrospectives involving many wonderful guests whose time I hope I have not wasted. I love you all. Your episodes are coming out now. Sorry, I took on too much work. You're all great. Who, who else is great is my very special guest, Chris Patches Morgutia. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm so excited to dive into what we're about to talk about today. Yes, we're going to talk about Scooby-Doo. What about Scooby-Doo? What's new with that pup Scooby-Doo? Did I is that did I mix the titles or is that like one of the actual titles? Because yes. there's like 70 shows. Yeah, it's an actual title. Yes, I did it. I'm the fucking best. Uh, but specifically, we're going to talk about Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island and the live-action Scooby-Doo movie. But before we get into those discussions, Patches, you wanted to get into the history of Scooby-Doo, and I think that's very important specifically for the live-action movie. And I'd even argue for Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island. Um, what is what is your history with Scooby-Doo in particular? My history with Scooby-Doo goes back uh, since I was a kid, pretty much, but even further back. Uh, Scooby-Doo was one of the first cartoons my dad watched when he first moved to the U.S. in the late 60s and early 70s. And I don't think he was going to, you know, I don't think he knew that his kids were going to be watching it 20-some-odd years later. Um, my issue with Scooby-Doo was mainly watching it at my grandma's house as a kid. I spent pretty much most of my childhood there, days off from school, uh, summer vacation, since my parents worked days and couldn't look after us. And a lot of it was spent just in front of the TV, just, you know, watching Cartoon Network or Nickelodeon after transitioning from, like, Nick Jr., and of course they had you know your standard Hanna-Barbera fair Flintstones Jetsons the cart the cartoon cartoons you had Dexter's Lab you had Johnny Bravo you had the Powerpuff Girls and of course a huge part of that was Scooby-Doo and not that I ever talked to my grandparents about it but I'm pretty sure they were you know having flashbacks of my dad and my uncle watching this growing up I mean as far as Scooby-Doo goes I've seen most of the stuff up until the early 2000s, uh, I've seen several of the direct-to-video Scooby-Doo movies, as well as uh, some odd episodes here and there, some later series. We are of the same generation, so we got like the tail end of reruns, of uh, Cartoon Network that you brought up, and I remember spending home a lot of like whenever I, I was sick and like my grandma would watch me or something like that. She was the one who had cable. I remember a lot of uh, that pup named Scooby Doo, the 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 OG, of course, uh, a crossover with oh, who did they the basketball team that the, the Harlem Globetrotters? Yes, the Harlem Globetrotters, and it was it was the best thing ever. I loved Scooby Doo, uh, so when. They made a live action movie. Obviously, I wanted to watch it in theaters. I didn't get to, but we'll we'll get more into that uh, that experience. I don't think I got to watch it in theaters either. I do remember that was one of the few movies that we bought on DVD for sure. That we did like straight up did not rent. We had it on DVD. I remember watching the deleted scenes as a kid and stuff like that. That was really the only. That's like one of the few times I ever really went out of my way to watch deleted scenes on a DVD or anything. Until recently, I had never seen them. Uh, until your behest, actually, for this episode. But uh, I guess let's get into the history of Scooby Doo then, because uh, this 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 guy's got a long, long legacy. Uh, oh my oh, god! Yeah. Is, is it the fiftieth anniversary this year? Sixtieth. Oh, it's the fiftieth anniversary of Scooby Doo this year. Holy shit! We did it. This was completely planned. No, yeah, Scooby Doo. <laughs> is now firmly planted as an American icon alongside Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny, if you really think about it. I would argue that Scooby-Doo's an American icon. He's lasted for 50 years, and he's well-known around the world, really. He's out. He's up there. And he's 
arguably the most well-known Hanna-Barbera character. Especially now because the the reruns that we saw on Cartoon Network and everything, Flintstones, uh, Jetsons and all that jazz, they're they're all on like Hanna, like, what was that, Boomerang? Right? Boomerang. On Boomerang now. Um, and they've kind of faded away. I think people generally know them still, but I think Scooby-Doo is the one that's endured the most. Before we get into the quick history, this wasn't like in their notes or anything like that, but why do you think that is? Why do you think Scooby-Doo is the one that keeps clicking with people? I was going to get into it a little later, but uh, Scooby-Doo had the biggest impact because I think it appealed more to just a general audience, whereas Flintstones and uh, Jetsons and stuff, they were reminiscent of, you know, 50 sitcoms. So those were obviously aimed a bit more at adults. And this one just cast a wide net. Like, kids were able to watch it. Uh, teenagers, adults, like, it had that kind of draw power. And then Hanna-Barbera didn't even see the success of this coming because after that, they try to cash in on their own fad by making a bunch of derivative series like Jabberjaw, Josie and the Pussycats, Speed Buggy, The Funky Phantom, Captain Caveman. Which, not to get into that too much, but that kind of became Hanna-Barbera's own undoing on their end. Mm. But Scooby-Doo prevailed, and you're not seeing new Yogi Bear series. You're not seeing new Fred, like Fred Flintstone, anything revolving him. You're not seeing any Jetsons things, and I'm not counting the Fred, the Flintstones and Jetsons WWE movies. Wait, what? There have been a Jetsons movie, I think one or two Flintstones movies, and definitely two Scooby-Doo movies where they meet WWE wrestlers. Oh, you mean like this scene? <laughs> I didn't believe that was real. So it's real. I, I, I haven't seen that whole movie. I just know that bit because that like blew up the internet when that happened. And um, yeah, and apparently Bobby Flay is Fred's uncle. Oh my god, Scooby Doo canon is the greatest thing ever. It really is. Um, but you have some more notes in the history. Do you want to yes. go over? And here's my brief history of the Scooby Doo timeline. Back in the late '60s, Hanna Barbera had several cartoons canceled because they were deemed too violent by parent advocacy groups. Um, so they were tasked with coming up with a new cartoon and they gave it off to writers, Joe Ruby and Ken Spears, who would eventually have their own animation studio and character designer, Iwao Takamoto, who they brought over from Disney in the early sixties. And they, their concept was to create a show based on the Archie show where it's a bunch of kids with a dog in a band that solves mysteries in between shows. Eventually, they kept retooling it. The band concept got dropped entirely. Scooby-Doo was named after uh, Frank Sinatra's scat singing when he goes Scooby-Dooby-Doo or whatever. And they liked the way it sounded so much, they just named him that. The end result was Scooby-Doo, Where Are You?, which premiered in 1969. It's just four kids and their dog just going around solving mysteries usually met a man in a mask and i mean man literally because i can't remember there ever being a female villain it mainly it mainly had to do with you know haunting a place for financial gain stuff like that villain of the week format no one ever really came back there were no really recurring characters at this point it did introduce fred the determined leader detective velma the brainy analyst daphne who was often capture prone in the damsel in distress and of course scooby and shaggy the hungry cowards who are more driven by wanting to eat food than actually solving mysteries and of course all the catchphrases were established they're shaggy you know zoinks velma's jinkies and of course scooby-doo triumph triumphantly saying his own name when they capture a villain I mean, it's pretty much standard format. It was 30-minute episodes, 
And that's pretty much the basic format that all series will follow. Uh, just something I, I want to touch on really quick, too, is that, yeah, it's always like uh, a wealthy old white guy wanting to, to rip off some people, which I think is like hilarious and maybe informed my own politics more than uh, a lot of other art. <laughs> I'm going to um, agree with you on that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the most true to life aspect of the series for sure. I have this like thesis that horror, the horror genre is like maybe the most pure kind of cinema, like in terms of like television and film. Um, it, it's the most like directly impactful on a young person's mind, I think, for better or for worse. You know, it can give them nightmares or it can give them something to like rise up against. I think that's why I like talking about horror stuff a lot on, on these podcasts too. We're all drawn to it or like afraid of it. You know, like not, not everyone loves horror like like we do probably, but it gives us something to to always walk away from, even like the cheapest versions of it. And I think Scooby-Doo kind of tapped into like this very specific atmosphere that cartoons didn't have at the time where like some of these are genuinely scary images you know or like yeah. when they go to like a haunted castle or like an abandoned amusement park or whatever like it's not just like place setting it actually feels like different settings even though you know basically they just copy and paste like backgrounds and they're running or whatever because of production costs yep um that's something that really still stands out to me that they're genuinely in like horror movie settings definitely and i think the challenge for the, the people producing the series was how do we make it suspenseful without frightening small children, which they pretty much pulled off with like every subsequent and successful, I'd say, uh, incarnation of Scooby-Doo. This was a runaway hit for Hanna-Barbera. And like I said, they were trying to double down on the success of that by making derivative series. Jabberjaw would eventually... Jabberjaw and I'd say Josie and the Pussycats would eventually pick up that original concept the Scooby-Doo of teenagers in a band solving mysteries between shows. This takes us to the new Scooby-Doo movies in 1972, where the episodes went from half hour to hour long. Same format, except now they were joined by guest stars who are both alive and living, such as the Harlem Globetrotters, uh, Sonny and Cher, Don Knotts, the Three Stooges, and my personal favorite, Batman and Robin. Sometimes they would even have other cartoons like Speed Buggy, which is funny because that was one of the Scooby-Doo derivatives. This one I'm, I'm less familiar with. Apart from the Harlem Globetrotters, I, I, I never saw the Batman Robin one. I never saw Josie and the Pussycats, Don Knotts, but I really want to because those sound like amazing crossovers. They really were. And not to get too ahead of myself here, but Scooby-Doo is going to be doing a new series sometime in the future using this exact same format, except they're going to have obviously more modern celebrities like Shaquille O'Neal and Mark Hamill. At this point, Scooby-Doo was pretty much destroying everything in the ratings. Eventually, that we got the Scooby-Doo show and Scooby's Laugh Olympics both in 1976. The Scooby-Doo show was a return to the original format and occasionally featured a new character, Scooby-Doo's cousin from Georgia, Scooby-Dumb, <laughs> which was considered the first misstep in the Scooby-Doo series. He didn't appear in too many episodes, but his catchphrases and antics were pretty repetitive, more so than other characters. So it was pretty much the first instance of Scooby-Doo jumping the shark, since new Scooby-Doo movies is pretty well received. Whereas Laugh Olympics was more of a Hanna-Barbera All-Stars show where they competed in various uh, competitions and it was made of three teams. Scooby's team uh, with the 70s crime-solving characters such as Steve Buggy, uh, Josie and the Pussycats, Captain Caveman. Yogi's team of 50s and 60s animal characters and a bad guy team formed of completely original characters who often cheated. It was at this point that Scooby-Doo started slipping in the ratings, and that brings us to Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo in 1979. And I wanted to place heavier emphasis on this because this is considered a turning point for better or worse for the franchise. This is when Scooby effectively jumped the shark completely. 
because they brought in Scrappy Doo to reduce failing ratings, who was introduced as Scooby's nephew, more accurately through his sister. And it was through Scrappy that they they put more emphasis on him, Shaggy, and Scooby because they were considered the more entertaining characters, whereas Velma, Daphne, and Fred had less of a had less of an emphasis and impact on the plot. After the first season, they were dropped entirely because they were considered too boring, instead deciding to focus strictly on Shaggy, Scooby, and Scrappy. Scrappy's shtick got old real fast. His whole concept was, you know, he'd get amped up to take down a villain, and they'd have to drag him off because, you know, he's the puppy and he's short. And he just wants to beat the living crap out of the villain. That's pretty much his, his whole thing every time they would show up. And he would be a fixture for the show for at least the next eight years. Because eventually we had the new Scooby and Scrappy Doo show where Daphne returns and they are now reporters for a teen magazine. And the very, very underappreciated 13 Ghosts of Scooby Doo, where Scooby and the gang. Specifically, Scooby accidentally releases 13 real ghosts from a chest. And they team up with a con, art, a con artist they meet, Flim Flam, and are occasionally assisted by Vincent Von Gould, voiced by the late Vincent Price. That's amazing. This one I had never heard of. That's That sounds like the best one. That one had a very short run. They never oh. caught the 13th ghost. Oh, no. But there was a follow-up film very recently where they actually go and catch that 13th ghost. And, of course, Flim Flam is now older. The rest of the gang is exactly the same. And it's his first time meeting Fred and Velma since they obviously were absent. Oh, that's, that's hilarious. This was the last series that Scrappy-Doo was featured in. Because after this, we went to a pup named Scooby-Doo at the very tail end of the 1980s. This followed the babyfication trend of the 1980s where you would take established characters and make them younger or just straight up babies, such as Muppet Babies, the Flintstone Kids, and the Garfield animated series even poked fun at it. So this series was instrumental in several ways. Up until 1989, it was not very it was not really established where these adventures took place. And it established their hometown as being a fictional town known as Coolsville. Other details were revealed as well, such as Scooby's full name being Scoobert Doo. Not Scoobert Dubert for everyone there who thought otherwise. Thank you, Tumblr and Twitter, for that. And just generally introduced a lot of other relatives of the Scooby characters. They decided to take some liberties with this series, as opposed to being very realistic and grounded they took more of a tex avery bob clampett approach where everything was a lot more loose and more slapstick and zany there were some character changes some that are very important because they did influence a lot of further incarnations so fred goes from being the determined leader to still being the determined leader but he's now easily drawn into conspiracy theories he has a very overactive imagination and tendency to jump to conclusions and if he wasn't blaming it on some kind of Weird conspiracy like Mole Men, you would blame the villain being a local bully named Red Herring, who was voiced by Scott Menville in one of his earlier roles, who coincidentally ended up being the villain in one episode where Red was not allowed to jump to the conclusion that he was the villain. Daphne goes from still being somewhat capture prone to being obscenely wealthy and acting like your stereotypical rich girl for humorous effect, but she still nonetheless loves the gang. She was the one who was the most grounded. She would constantly reinforce, there's no such thing as ghosts. The supernatural is all fake, even though there was an episode where they did meet a real ghost who happened to be friendly. Velma, in general, was just a lot more soft-spoken, but was very uh, literate when it came to the use of technology and often carried around a huge computer in a briefcase. It was very typical for its time. It feels very 80s, is what I can really say about that one that one ran from 89 to 91 and that was the last major scooby-doo series before 
it laid dormant for a while. Now, while that was going on, in 1988, Hanna-Barbera put out several movies using several of their well-established cartoon characters, the more popular ones, so Top Cat, The Flintstones, Yogi Bear. Scooby-Doo walked away with three. Scooby-Doo meets the Boo Brothers in 1987, where they hire supernatural exterminators who happen to be ghosts. Scooby-Doo and the Ghoul School in 1988, where Scooby, Shaggy, and Scrappy are... teachers at a school for the daughters of classic monster movie villains, such as Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Mummy. And Scooby-Doo and the Relative Werewolf, where Shaggy is turned into a werewolf by Dracula to participate in the annual race because the original Wolfman is retired and no longer wants to race. His prize being, if he wins, he no longer has to be the Wolfman. That was Scrappy's last appearance as a protagonist. And he would not show up for another 14 years. Lastly, there was Arabian Nights in 1994, which was, I believe, either a TV special or a direct-to-video featuring a lot of Hanna-Barbera characters reenacting stories from Arabian Nights. Scooby and Shaggy were in it, but they were they're both the narrators. It was Don Messick's final role as Scooby-Doo and one of Casey Kasem's last roles as Shaggy. Up until 2003, the reason for his absence being a year after this was released, he was tapped to voice Shaggy in a commercial for Burger King. And by then, Casey Kasem had had become a strict vegetarian. So after voicing Shaggy in that, he requested from now on to make Shaggy a vegetarian. And when Hanna-Barbera didn't give in to his request, he dipped. Eventually, they would come around and he would return in 2003 for What's New Scooby-Doo, where Shaggy was briefly a vegetarian from 2003 to 2009, and he's now an omnivore after Casey Kasem left the show due to health issues. So that's pretty much the brief history of Scooby-Doo, and we'll be referring back to these pretty often, I'd say. Yeah, uh, especially because Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island very much served as like a sequel to everything, (laughs) in a way. The original Scream Team is back, featuring all your old friends and starring the world's hungriest hero, Scooby-Dooby-Doo. What really struck me with this movie is that it's very sincere. Like, just to touch on the plot a little bit, it's about the Mystery Inc. deciding to go off in their separate directions, uh, but not out of cynicism, not out of spite, not out of disdain for one another. It's just, hey, we did this job for a while. Maybe it's time we all move on. They got a little bored. You know, they're they're human beings, which is not something I expected to say about a cartoon straight-to-video movie. Um, (laughs) Well, like, I I was very surprised by that because I guess because we're going to be talking about it later, the live action movie is much more cynical in this approach. And that definitely comes down to the original direction of the film and the writer. Um, but here it's just like, yeah, they all love each other still. Oh, they see, they see uh, a Daphne on television uh, with, alongside with Fred as her, as her cameraman and uh, Velma's got her own little bookstore and they all miss each other. And I was like, man, this is like touching and sweet and nice and i I didn't expect it to be mean or anything i was you you don't see movies like that with like a gang having to come back together usually start off on a positive note like that it's always like oh well you did me wrong this way and everyone's pointing fingers at each other you know and you got to work through that but nope everyone's back together they're happy to be back together and they just go off to the races now the tagline for scooby-doo on zombie island is that this time time, the monsters monsters are are real And this is not the first time in Scooby-Doo canon that they were real, but let's just pretend that they were for this. That, that's what you kind of have to go into with this one. Like, there, there were pockets here and there, right? Like, yeah. in episodes or, uh, or specials. Scooby-Doo, again, the, the three late 80s uh, made-for-TV movies. But I think the thing was, you know, this time they were a legitimate threat. They were, they were marketed as the villains in this one. And this is the first time that 
the entire gang had uh, had encountered real monsters for the most part. What it comes down to was the gang broke up reluctantly because they were bored, really. They got bored of it being the same old thing, man in a mask, usually out for financial gain. And they just get thrust into this adventure where they're just completely unprepared for. So when Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island was first proposed, Hanna-Barbera was in the process of getting bought out and transferred over to Warner Brothers. So the production of the film started while it was still Hanna-Barbera Studios and ended up being a co-production with Warner Brothers after the merger was complete. And this movie stands out along with the subsequent three, Scooby-Doo and the Witch's Ghost, Scooby-Doo and the Alien Invaders, and Scooby-Doo and the Cyber Chase, because they were not animated in-house at Hanna-Barbera Studios for as far as I know. They were actually animated overseas at a Japanese animation studio, Mook Animation. Quick Search doesn't show that they worked on much. They did do the new Johnny Quest series in the 1990s, but only the second season. And I believe they worked on Squad Cats, but I'm not entirely sure on that one. There's nothing that they've done that your typical anime fan would be familiar. If it, if it was, it was very, very small, small time, like OVA, original video animation that is lost to the sands of time for all we know. Well, the animation itself here is pretty dang good for straight to video. You know, I mean, like, like how many of those DC animated movies they pump out like on a yearly basis and they all just look like the same flash animation, the same. There's no like, very rarely is there like a nice depth of feel like this. Like here there's like striking imagery of like, Scooby and Shaggy jumping up when they're scared, like in front of the, the, the like this gold moon. And it's just like, this is, this is really good. This is really impressive for their budget. It really was. I, I feel like a lot of the budget went into that, but let's also talk about the voice cast because this oh is my like an ensemble cast of voice actors. We're hungry and we're going to get some food to go. Yeah. So first of all, Scooby-Doo is not voiced by Don Messick because after Radiant Nights, he had passed away before this movie had come out. So Scott Innes took over as Scooby-Doo up until 2002. You have Shaggy voiced by Billy West for the first and only time in his career, known for primarily Ren and Stimpy and Doug Funny from Doug and filling in the shoes of Elmer Fudd and Bugs Bunny in Space Jam. He would not return as Shaggy because he was too busy doing Futurama, where he was Philip J. Fry, Professor Farnsworth, Zap Brannigan, and Dr. Zoyberg. Daphne is voiced by the late Mary Kay Bergman, who did a lot of the female voices of South Park in the earlier seasons. Fred was the only one who retained his original voice actor since the amazingly talented Frank Welker, who not only voices several characters in 70s, 80s, 90s cartoons and beyond, but also, fun fact, he does a lot of animal voices. So whenever you need like a monkey or something, like he's your go-to guy. He was a boo in Aladdin, by the way. Wow, and, I didn't and, know that. And Nibbler in Futurama, both the little animal noises when he's playing stupid and of course, when he actually has a significant part of the plot and he's all deep voiced and smart. And then lastly, BJ Ward as Velma, who I believe voiced all the female characters in the original Voltron series. And I believe you wanted to kind of touch on some of the side characters as well. Oh God, do I? Uh, any John Carpenter fans out there know that uh, Matt Garingo and I try to touch on a Carpenter film every Halloween. One of his earliest mainstays was uh, American icon Adrienne Barbeau, who starred in The Fog. She was in the original Broadway version of Grease. Okay, she was in HBO's Carnival as Ruthie the Snake Dancer for, for the, a deep cut for the fans. The voice of Catwoman on Batman, the animated series, and, and many subsequent Batman series. Escape from New York. Creepshow, which I still have not seen at this point. 
Swamp Thing, Argo, like one of the like most renowned genre film actresses ever as Simone Lenoir. Uh, Tara Strong, who is in everything, and rightfully so, because she's always a treasure, as Lena Dupree. Uh, I'm not familiar with Cameron Clark, but I guess he's best known for some Ninja Turtle stuff, uh, as Bo Neville, and the great Jim Cummings, Winnie the Pooh himself, as Jacques. The, Darkwing the Duck. Oh, oh, Darkwing Duck. Darkwing uh, Duck. Uh, Pete. Pete from Disney. Oh my god, that's right. So he's in Kingdom Hearts, like, several yeah, times Yeah, he's over. in Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> One of the amazing. few original voice actors they got for that. And of course, last but very much not least, Mark Hamill as Snakebite Scrubs. Who, at first listen, you would not believe it's Mark Hamill, but then again, Mark Hamill, I'd say, is a prophetic voice actor, so it's easy to not be able to tell it's Mark Hamill. Because this cast is just stacked. That's, oh, whoops. I forgot we're trying not to curse on this because this is a family-friendly episode. God. <laughs> so I'm going to have to censor myself on that one. <laughs> Zoinks, Diego. You really, you, really, uh, you really botched that one. Some more quick stuff from the plot. Daphne and Fred are going around America uh, highlighting different locations with, with their season two renewal. They announced that they want to go find haunted places around America, but not men in masks anymore. Uh, they're done with that. They want to find legitimately haunted places. Of course, naturally, they do find one on a Moonscar Island in New or off the shore of New Orleans. And, uh, of course, they're not prepared at all. And shenanigans ensue when Fred decides to reinvite the gang because he knows everyone misses each other. And it, they don't do a lot with the characters in this, but everything they do feels very authentic to who these, who we understand these people are. And that Fred, while, like, you know, uh, very much the ideal American hero, so to speak, for, for this series. He's also got, like, a heart of gold. Like, he's a big softie. Yeah. You know? he, he's not someone who's, like, stoic or needs to, like, put on a facade. Like, he just genuinely loves his friends. It's a very wholesome movie experience with that. Like, all the characters just love each other. And how rare is that, you know? Honestly, yeah. Uh, it was Fred's insistence that they bring the gang back together you know, for old time's sake, and everyone's more than excited. Velma clearly loves running a bookstore, but has a love-hate relationship with it. And I really wanted to point out that Scooby and Shaggy go job to job and can't hold one down for a while. And the one they're working at that's highlighted in the film is as dreaded TSA agents. <laughs> and they get fired for eating all the confiscated food. Ron Swanson would be proud of them for that. <laughs> Using tax dollars to just eat food. Oh my God, I wish that was my job, honestly. Jesus. They were uh, serving the country by eating the contraband. They're serving the for country that. by serving themselves food. Exactly, and for that, I salute them. <laughs> um, I also have to say that the first part of the movie that just made me burst out laughing, like, it's a small, it's not like a huge joke. It's just because uh, Shaggy's always like, like, you know, um, he picks up the phone and he's just like, like, hello? <laughs> <laughs> and he just killed me, man. That was the funniest thing ever. I don't know why. Oh, man. Like, I'll also be real with you. And again, with respect to the original characters and everything that's been established, I don't know if you knew this, but Iwao Takamoto, the original character designer for the series, was given a role in the movie actually really he was given a creative design consultant because the storyboard artists would go to him to make sure the chase scenes and scooby and shaggy just running away from stuff feel as authentic as possible obviously he greenlit a lot of what went on and remember now that you have a bit more of a budget you're, the characters were not constricted to strictly a two-dimensional plane. There's more dynamic shots of them running from things, whether it's in an arc or in a straight line. And it feels very real. And I have to hand it to Mook Animation for generally making the characters feel a lot more expressive in general. And they're very expressive. I mean, we're living in a time right now where we're seeing a lot of live-action-esque remakes. 
And um, the big point of controversy is that, you know, like animation is great because you can literally do anything. You can animate anything and people will buy into it because that's just what animation allows you to do. It allows you to establish this world, this, this color, this palette, this, these expressions. I and love that you mentioned the palette actually, because that was a bold decision to just go with darker colors as opposed to just the flat, bright colors of the 60s through 80s. Because now it really feels like a scary movie. Yeah, it's even really... more so than the original series. Like this, and there's like a, um, I mean, obviously it's going to change like aesthetic and atmosphere as they get deeper and deeper into the bayou. But like, you really feel like they're going to like a heart of darkness kind of, situation i mean obviously not as fucked up but oh, uh yeah so so pretty so pretty dark stuff going on here as we as we discover i mean obviously spoilers for this if you haven't if you haven't seen scooby-doo on zombie island i think it's safe to say we both recommend it so go um, go watch it the other going back into the plot in general though they did do a very good job of conveying the short time that they're in new orleans before they head to moonscar island on the bayou as someone who's personally been there myself. And it looks like they were pretty much spending time in the French Quarter. Scooby, Shag, and the rest of the gang are just kind of tired that it's man-in-a-mask situations all over again when Lena Dupree overhears them and invites them over to their plantation, which, according to Simone Lenoir, is haunted by the ghost of Morgan Moonscar, who is the island's namesake. And... Snakebite Scruggs sadly does not have much of a role in the film aside from hating tourists and trying to catch a huge catfish that Jacques always making fun of him for, claiming that it's uncatchable. But uh, he pretty much is the plot vehicle for introducing the zombies because his hunting pig Mojo gets into it with Scooby and he chases both Scooby and Shaggy into a pit that has zombies after they're not allowed to eat in the house because Scooby can't stop getting into it with Simone's cats. And it should be noted that like all Scooby-Doo things, he's the red herring. He's, he's the big red herring. Definitely so, because he was one of the original suspects. There was also Bo, the gardener of the estate, who Velma specifically also uh, calls out as a red herring because of his so-called suspicious behavior. Despite even Simone is very in the dark about his true intentions because she questions Velma on that thing. Bo, really? Like, he had very good references for when he applied for this job. The, the film does do a very good job of making you think, oh, this guy's the bad guy. Specifically the scene where they're out looking for Scooby and Shaggy. And there's the scene where they get into a small confrontation because he's tired of Velma considering him a suspect. And I want to call out the scene specifically when he picks up the large rock and throws it in her direction. I legitimately thought as a kid, oh my God, Velma is going to get killed. Because <laughs> it even zooms in on her face and she just is helpless. But it turns out that he throws it in her general direction to make sure, to confirm the existence of quicksand. And it's intentionally misleading to make you think that. They are chased by zombies. They are chased by pirate zombies, including Morgan Moonscar himself, which was the first zombie they encounter. They encounter some old-timey-looking people from, like, the 1700s. And tourists, as recently as the 60s, what appears to be, like, mobsters and, like, flapper girls from the 1920s, as well as Civil War soldiers, both Confederate and Union. Because Simone does mention in the plot that it was originally founded as a pepper plantation and was briefly a Confederate stronghold, and it had been in her family for generations. Eventually, after getting chased by zombies, getting the mystery machine stuck in mud, Fred and Daphne losing the camera in the quicksand, they stumble upon, Scooby and Shaggy specifically stumble upon a, a room with obviously set up for some sort of ritual where they find voodoo dolls with the rest of the gang. And then eventually, after they all get captured, it's revealed that Simone and Lena are both cat creatures. The reason being, they were settlers in the late 1700s. And this is where the movie gets really dark and just does not care. Aggressively dark. They're, they settle in this small bayou in Louisiana. And all of a sudden, 
Morgan Moonscar and his band of pirates show up to bury their treasure, I'm assuming. And obviously they don't want anyone knowing where it's at. So they crash the festivities and they don't slaughter them on screen or anything, but they drive them into the swamp where all the settlers are presumably eaten by alligators with Simone and Lena being the lone survivors. And out of desperation during the harvest moon, they pray to their cat God who not only bestows them the ability to turn into cat creatures and immortality, but it's at the cost of someone else's soul. So they get, end up getting their revenge on Morgan Moonscar by absorbing the souls of all of his crew. A year later, new settlers come establish a pepper plantation. They kill them. And that's how they got the mansion. And they kept this up every year during the harvest moon in order to keep their immortality and eventually got Jacques involved because he too wished for immortality. It's also here where it's revealed that the zombies are not actually bad guys, but rather innocent souls. Although I don't really know if you would consider Confederate soldiers to be innocent considering they were pretty racist. Yeah, I was going to say, there's definitely a gray area we can get into, but, but go ahead. They were trying to warn them of their fate because as Jacques is trying to corner Scooby and Shaggy, the only ones who didn't have voodoo dolls because Simone and Lena didn't bother seeing, considering them to be too stupid, the zombies dogpile on Jacques as he's about to attack them. Eventually, the final showdown reveals that Bo is actually an undercover investigator trying to investigate the disappearances on Moonscar Island. I want to point out throughout the movie, the most beautifully animated scenes, in my opinion, were the chase scenes, which were done with a lot of love and care, as previously mentioned. And the scene when Lena and Simone transform into cat creatures, and subsequently, when the ritual is not done in time, and they turn to dust. That That was some straight-up Indiana Jones shit. (laughs) Yes, that was... That was magical. Literally. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's it's a very dark movie. Like, I'm surprised I saw this as a kid. I rented it from Blockbuster or, or Hollywood Video, one of those two. I think I went to Hollywood Video more. I'm going to say that one. I'm going to stick to that. But uh, I, I remember, like, just consistently renting it because I loved it so much. And then just totally just got away from me. Just years and years went by without me revisiting it. So I... When I double featured this the night before recording this uh, with the live action Scooby Doo movie, I was really taken back by like it, this movie goes pretty hard into the horror stuff. Like it's about the gang discovering a cycle of revenge that's consuming a region of downtrodden America with a dark past and dark history, and the victims are marauding pirates who are responsible for the death of a cult of colonists and the death of Confederate soldiers who who have basically been stuck in purgatory in their zombie forms and are redeemed only by trying to warn people for generations after generations. That's insane (laughs) that this is a movie for kids. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that is insane. <laughs> in my opinion, they cast a wide net in terms of their audience and it worked. Cause I think even older Scooby-Doo fans would say, Hey, like they did something different here and it worked. It went a little darker without, you know, sacrificing the integrity of these characters. And for the first movie to be set in new Orleans, that's a pretty gutsy move, considering New Orleans is very well known, especially if you're into uh, anything horror or spooky related. You know, a lot of the st- older structures and cemeteries in New Orleans are are claimed to be haunted. I mean, you got, again, old structures, especially those closer to the French Quarter. Several cemeteries. Nicholas Cage's tomb is there. Funny story, when I went to New Orleans myself, I was still playing Pokemon Go pretty avidly, and I passed by a Pokestop in a cemetery, and it's just like this pyramid tomb with Latin text on it. And it said, this is the final resting spot of Nicolas Cage. And I'm like, what? And I Googled that, and it turns out, yeah, Nicolas Cage 
plot, a plot of land in one of the most haunted cemeteries in New Orleans, a city that he is fascinated by, for that to be his final resting place. And of course, yeah. also the hole that Tommy Wiseau crawl, crawled out of since he claims he's from New Orleans. That's That might be more insane than the, the movie. Those last two facts right there about Nicolas Cage and Tommy Wiseau might be crazier than the movie we just talked about. I was actually joking about Tommy Wiseau. It's established that he's from Eastern Europe. Oh, okay. But he likes to claim he's from New Orleans a lot because that's where he first came to the States, I believe. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. That's totally a New Orleans accent, you know? Obviously. Obviously. But, um, you know, this is just a movie that's done with love. My only real complaints were not even really complaints, but. Uh, Billy West, of course, does an amazing Shaggy. At the very beginning, I did hear hints of like Stimpy and Doug, but eventually you forget about that because he does such a great job doing, doing Shaggy. And it's a shame that he didn't come back for future roles. Again, because he was an in-demand voice actor right after this movie came out. Yeah, and that is too bad. Mind you, I haven't seen a Scooby-Doo thing in a long time. I've always had a lot of love for the, the series. Same. So, for, so for me to revisit this, I was like, hey, that, that's... It didn't even hit me, so I got to give him props to that. that. That might be like a just an ignorance bias, I guess. But um, no, I, I think the, the voice cast is, is is very strong here. There was uh, also uh, times where they subverted the tropes, such as when Fred's getting ready for the dinner. He's like trying to pick out an outfit, and he puts on an ascot, and he just straight up just like tosses it to the side. <laughs> He's like, nah. And Fred would not wear an ascot for a good while until I think Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated in 2010. I could be wrong. But, again, they're doing things a little different. When Shaggy's running away from the zombies and he runs into Daphne, she does a shoulder throw on Shaggy. And Fred even questions, like, oh, like, where... Where'd you learn to do that, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it, it's implying that between when the gang broke up and they got back together, Daphne was learning how to defend herself more. But the only things that really make it feel dated, I'd say, are the music. Apparently, the next movie had Billy Ray Cyrus do the theme song, <laughs> which I want to take a listen to. And the main song that plays during the chase scene classic Scooby-Doo staple of a song playing during a chase scene is Terror Time Again by Sky Cycle. This was pretty much their only claim to fame. They were a 1990s alternative rock band from Los Angeles. And I'll be frank about this. Obviously, the budget did not go into the music for this. So this song sounded like it was a reject off the Sonic Adventure 2 soundtrack. That's exactly what it sounds like. Holy But other than that, I mean, final thoughts. I don't. I don't hate that that song. I it's very of the era for sure. But I think that's kind of why I like it too. You know, like it's the right kind of dated for me. Like, oh yeah, that hits that hits my sweet spot. You know, I try to fight nostalgia at every toss and turn. But this one got me. And I also just think it's a genuinely very well structured movie. There's there's quality like setup and payoffs, like with the chilies. Um, Scooby being able to like squirt that in the face of the cat people. Uh, jocks, jocks. Yeah, jocks. <laughs> um, let me just say also that this will this will date this episode when we're recording. Uh, the cats trailer recently came out, so when they turned into cat people and I forgot, I thought, "Oh my god, I can't escape it." Oh no, James Corden is trying to rip apart Scooby and Shaggy. Yeah. Oh, that's no, that's just too scary. That'd be a hard R movie. You can't, you can't make that. <laughs> That'd be horrifying. Um, but no, this this is. A, this is a great like film for for families and kids, uh, and I don't I don't mean like some people kind of talk down with that like oh yeah it's a kids movie like no this this is I had a really great time revisiting this I I would genuinely like buy like an upgraded like upscaled Blu-ray of it. There uh, might and have be. have it in my collection. There might be because I know Cyber Chase I think was the first of these four movies to get a re-release on Blu-ray. Ooh, again I'm not much of a film buff the way you or Matt or even Gene are. But I am a strong advocate for animation and 
I firmly believe that animation is for everyone. A well-done animated series or movie is able to appeal to all age groups and have something that can keep kids entertained while also entertaining older people, throwing in jokes that maybe the kids won't get, but eventually they'll get when they're older. Something that the adults will get on their first watch of the movie. And this hits all the bases, really. It covers all the bases, and it's just done with so much love for this series. I mean, yeah. William Hanna and Joseph Barbera were still alive when this movie came out, and they greenlit it. So clearly everyone's hearts were in the right place here. And I like to think that this is the movie that really rejuvenated interest in Scooby-Doo, not only because we got a series way more series way later, but it started a string of direct-to-video, occasionally shown on Cartoon Network movies. We got, again, The Witch's Ghost set in Massachusetts. We've got Alien Invaders set in New Mexico. We got The Cyber Chase, which takes place in a video game. And they would go all over America. Some would revert back to the Man in the Mask trope or use real monsters. We had the crossovers of WWE and... Bobby Flay, for whatever reason. There's a Lego Scooby-Doo movie out there somewhere. But it's done, like, it's, it's done in the lower budget, like uh, Lego Ninjago or stuff like that. So I've heard it's actually pretty good, though. There was another Lego Batman movie as well. Or maybe it was Lego DC. But I saw a clip from it, and it was it was pretty funny. So it's worth giving them a shot. But this really is what brought Scooby-Doo back from the dead for lack of a better uh, term. I would even argue that it influenced one of the biggest 2000 series that's still going right now. I've kind of tapped out of it a while ago. Um, Supernatural. I think I think that was a, a stepping stone from this. Uh, not necessarily in quality, but I think it, it proved interest that people love light horror stuff, you know? like road comedy kind of stuff too. And that, that series that is best had a very Scooby-Doo vibe. Of course, the monsters are always real in Supernatural, but um, I, I, I can see the, like, the footprints of the evolution, you know? Uh, and they did a crossover with Scooby-Doo that I will say I, I caught it randomly because I was interested and I love Scooby-Doo. It's very good. You could hop into that one episode and it's just a delight. You will not regret it. Um, I haven't watched a single episode of, of Supernatural since, but I, I just saw that one and it was totally worth it. A total love letter to the series. Uh, Zombie Island is better. I will say that for sure. But Zombie Island is like the greatest movie ever made. So naturally, we should switch into the other greatest movie ever made. The James Gunn scripted Scooby-Doo live action film. So come along with Scooby and all the gang in their most frightening mystery ever, Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island. Because this time, the monsters are real. Well, Diego, looks like, like we got another Scooby-Doo review on our hands. Yay! 